Hey everybody, welcome to It's Real with Jordan and Demi. I'm Jordan Edwards. And I'm Demi Ramos. And today we've got Suzanne Vega on the show. Suzanne, what's going on? Oh gosh, uh, just the usual pandemic stuff. You know, making lunch, dealing with the dog, laundry, other yeah. fun Rel- items. Rel- things relatable like everyday stuff. Yeah. How's and talking dog, to you. Suzanne? Yeah. Oh, Molly's good. She's good. Yeah, she's all right. Are you a lifelong dog person? Have you always had dogs? Uh, normally I have cats. Um, I had I had two dogs when I was much younger and then not any until my daughter wanted a dog. Um, but uh, usually we have cats. We are so excited to have you today. You are a New York City legend. Um, I want to talk to you about how you're this pop folk girl running around lower New York City and you know you broke into the industry sold millions of records um we're actually really good friends outside of this so Mm. I'm like personally so hyped um (laughs) so yeah take us to the beginning when you were playing these clubs in New York City as like a kid tell me about that um I started performing when I was 16 I started to perform in church basements and places like that the very first one was on 86th street and West End Avenue there's a huge church there and they used to have a little coffee house in the basement so that was my first gig when I was 16. um and then I started, I'm, I was gonna climb that ladder. You know, I was gonna go down to the village and I decided I was gonna start playing folk clubs down there. Um, I tried to get a gig actually at the bitter end, which is where I saw Demi for the first time. Yeah. I tried to get a gig there for two years and I never got a, I, I never got it. What? <laughs> they kept saying no, I, that's right. They kept saying, oh, you know, he gave me, interestingly, the guy who ran the hoot night on Mondays gave me a lot of advice, a lot of which I, is still there in my brain, um, but he just never gave me the gig. So he told me not to bother with covers and to keep doing my own material, although he also said that, you know, the, the songs I was writing was too much like poetry, but if I wrote those kinds of songs, I could write real songs, so I should try doing that. Um, so instead, after two years of them saying no, I decided to go on to Folk City, which was the next sort of club up the ladder. Um, and there I found a whole bunch of people I loved and I um, kind of settled in there and kind of found my people and um, played there pretty much for five years. And in that five years, I met my manager. We made demo tapes, which is what we did back then and uh, sent them around. Um, So it was a kind of groundswell thing that was happening over a period of years. And then everything changed once I got this really great review in the New York Times. Um, That kind of changed everything. And I ended up with a record deal with A&M Records at the age of 24. Wow, and what was the music scene like at the time? Like what what did New York look like? What did it smell like? What will tell? Tell me about New York City at the time. It bad. It smelled bad. Uh, it was uh, the punk rock scene was what was really happening. You know, the folk scene was considered very old fashioned. And, um, you know, a lot of the people in our scene really loved Bob Dylan. And Bob Dylan had started his Rolling Thunder review tour from Folk City. Uh, so a lot of people thought of folk music as something that was big in the 60s and 70s. But um, I liked 
punk rock. I like new wave, some of it. Um, and so I, my, what I was trying to do was uh, combine some of the elements of folk with my acoustic guitar and also some of the ideas of new wave and and not so much punk because I'm not a yes screamer. Um, but I was interested in those ideas and they were all over New York, um, but it's very punky um, aesthetic in most of the clubs, the dark walls, filthy garbage everywhere, you know, graffiti. Um, New York was uh, still recovering, I think, from the economic problems of the 70s. So it was pretty grimy. You mentioned New Wave. Did yeah. you ever, were you ever tempted to really like lean into the whole, like uh, you came up, you know, like your first album came, you're like 85, 86, 87 in that era. Were you ever tempted to really lean into synthesizers and really, you know, dated production, like really go for the pop song? <laughs> I, I know you're laughing, but it's, it, it, a lot of people did that, you know? I loved all that stuff. I love the cars. To me, like the cars is like a, um, is a great pop band with great 80s production. Um, I probably would have been happy if we had done that a little, a little more of that actually, but uh, we did use synthesizers. In fact, they're all over the first album. Um, that's how we started to perform. I had my, I, I always played acoustic guitar, but we decided that instead of having a bass player, my, one of my producers, Steve Adabo would play bass on the synth synthesizer. So that was considered really like edgy and cool. Um, so you kind of, kind of mixing the, the traditional singer songwriter stuff with the sounds of the time. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I've always tried to do. Um, every album that I make, I try and keep it. I always have the acoustic guitar at the heart of things, but then I try and mix it with whatever technology is cool of the moment, whether that's a, uh, whether that's sampling or making loops or you know whatever it is, um, that's what that's what I do, and that's what we did from the beginning. <laughs> yeah, there's some oh, yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's a little toy. My husband's playing with a toy for the dog, so that's what that speaking is. <laughs> oh my goodness! Now, yeah. you signed with A and M, a, a big label. You originally yeah. had thought about going the indie route. And why did you choose to go with a major label and, and go for as big as things you, as you could get? It was exciting to me. The whole idea, uh, the fact that my manager on my very first lunch with Ron Fierstein, he sat me down and he said, where do you see yourself fitting in? Uh, and I said, you know, maybe Flying Fish. That They were like, I don't know. Are you hearing my husband back there? No. No. I can't good. hear him now. Okay, yeah, that's yeah, great. Yeah. All right. Fantastic. That's what I want to hear. All right. So, <laughs> so, um, so yeah, that was sort of the limit that I could think of. Uh, but he had this bigger vision. He said, I think you could, we could get a record deal. And I think A&M is the place for you because they're, they're a singer songwriter label and that's what you are. Um, and that was so exciting to me. That was like beyond my, um, what my imagination could have provided. So uh, I was like, okay, do it. You know, you wanna get me a, a major label deal? I'm on board for that. I figured anything that was better than what I had was great. You know, I was working a day job. I was working as a receptionist um, in, a, in a little office. I was making $12,000 a year. 
which is not a lot, uh, you know, back then. And so I thought, okay, I wasn't going to say no, uh, keep it smaller. I, I was like, okay, let's, let's try it. And you, it worked. <laughs> it really freaking worked. Do you remember the day, Suzanne, that you wrote Tom's Diner? I do remember the day. Uh, and it was really a day where there was not a lot going on. You know, I was not, uh, it was just a, a quiet sort of day. I wrote it in 1981. I guess I shouldn't really say that, but it's true. Um, I had eaten at Tom's in the morning. I think I was probably walking down Broadway. Um, and I suddenly got the idea for the song in my mind. It just kind of popped into my head. And I thought I'd love to write a song called Tom's Diner. Restaurant's actually called Tom's Restaurant. It's at 116th and Broadway. Um, or 112th, 112th and Broadway, actually. Uh, not a fancy place. Really kind of, again, kind of grimy, like everything else in New York was. Um, so, yeah, it popped into my head. I did not think, oh. Yeah, did you think it was going to be the, one of the biggest songs of your career when you were writing it? It was no, just an intro, all. basically. It was an intro to the album, almost. It used to be the intro to all of my sets. Uh, it really worked a cappella uh, when I would come and play at Folk City or play anywhere, really. If I started singing it, uh, people would stop talking and they would stop drinking and they would turn around and look at me and look at the stage. Um, it even worked in one of the biggest gigs I ever did in 1986, I played Wembley, uh, Wembley, Wembley Stadium, Wembley Stadium, well, I think it was Wembley Arena, oh, okay. the smaller, yeah, Wembley okay. Arena. So uh, for the Prince's Trust, and I was the opening act for everybody on the bill. It, it was a bill including like Tina Turner and Paul McCartney and Rod Stewart and Sting and all these people. And I decided to start the way I always started, which was acapella Tom's Diner. And it, and it worked. Everybody got quiet, sat down in their seats and turned around and, and looked at me. And so I had them for the whole four, so my little four song set that I did. That must have been um, crazy to imagine th that this, this little song, this little ditty that you'd written, that you'd sing for probably, you know, 10, 20, 30 people at a time when you first started it. Now yeah. it was being sung for thousands and thousands of people that must have just been so surreal it was um but then a lot of things about my career has been that way you know I started off with very small songs on my guitar very quiet sound um I tried playing with a band in my teens and I found I just didn't like it very much I, and I I couldn't have, I can't couldn't really afford a band um so I did everything in my own small way and then uh but it it really connected and it really kind of struck a nerve um so i'd say i had five years there of just continuous growth when i i, I think i probably sold like five million albums in between 1985 and 1990 and the you know kind of the, the cherry on top of that was the the dna remix of tom's diner and yeah so that whole thing was just kind of strange because they kind of made that unor unauthorized, correct? They, they just yeah. made that remix and you, they didn't think that you'd actually approve of it. Here's what happened. They made the remix. They really liked it. They con tried to contact A&M Records. A&M Records never got back to them. 
they decided they were just going to release it themselves, um, which they did. And they gave it to their local record store on the corner and it immediately started to sell. And right after that, we heard from A&M Records saying these boys took your song. They've infringed the copyright uh, law. We're going to the A&M wanted to sue them. So uh, I listened to it backstage and I really liked it. You know, I, I'm from New York. I came, I grew up in like very mixed culture neighborhoods and I thought it was really cool. So it was my idea to buy it from them and then release it uh, under the saying DNA featuring Suzanne Vega. Um, and again, it worked much better. I thought it would be in some like dance clubs uh, but instead, it, it sort of went top 10, I think, all over the world. And I really love it because it serves as a really good, I love bridge songs between eras. And I think that's a really like good bridge song between the 80s and the 90s. It has elements. Facts. The remix is very 90s, but the songs from the 80s, it just kind of like works. And I think that's why it really hit with people. Tell us about the making of Solitude Standing. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, Solitude Standing was an album that was very stressful for me because, uh, you know, the first album came out and A&M Records really had very low expectations for me. And I knew that. Uh, and that was okay. I didn't really care. Um, they figured I was going to sell 30,000 of my first album. And I'm like, great, that's more, more than I'd ever sold. You know, I'd never sold any. <laughs> so I'm like, 30,000 sounds okay. Well, we sold 17,000 the very first week it came out. Yeah. So uh, it ended up selling like a million worldwide. So there's this huge pressure for the second album. And I'd used most of my songs, the best ones that I liked for the first album. I had two that I'd reserved. I had Tom's Diner and I had Luca, uh, which I saved for the second album. And then I had to write all the other songs. So uh, <laughs> my manager, Ron, was very eager for me to get going and I just wasn't used to working under a deadline. So I had to finish all the songs. And uh, we also, by the way, the producers of my first two albums were Lenny Kay, who was Patti Smith's right-hand man and guitarist. And then also Steve Adabo, who's a really great engineer. So I had those two producers. Um, and they used to take turns like pushing me, pushing me to finish my lyrics, pushing me to finish my vocals. Um, so uh, it was, yeah, it was a lot of pressure. I remember feeling like I was hanging by my fingernails from a cliff was the mental image I had at the time. So it was all about like finishing the album, finishing the album, finish, finish, finish. Uh, and we already knew that Luca would be the single. We knew that because uh, Ron Fierstein had uh, felt that it would make a good single. I didn't think so. I thought that was kind of crazy, um, but he was right. It went to radio and immediately took off and the album went gold in the United States in eight weeks. And gold means it's sold like 500,000 copies in the United States um, and sold 3 million all around the world. Really, it was really fast. Like everything that happened that year was just like, uh, amazing. Um, and it happened like overnight, like one minute we were playing little folky clubs. And then the next minute, suddenly we were playing, you know, 2000, 3000, 4000, sometimes 6,000 seat venues. I mean, there was pressure for you as an artist, but like, where did you see in your life changes in your personal life and how did it affect your relationships? Just, just like a success 
Um, how did you handle that? And how did the people around you and the people closest to you handle that? Well, there was an aspect to it that was really great. I mean, the idea of being successful was was kind of wonderful. Um, I remember meeting Debbie Harry from Blondie for the first time and she came over to me and she said, I just want to congratulate you on all your success. And I was like, Debbie oh. Harry is coming over to me to say that. I mean, I remember just being, I, I think I like- Suzanne, I'm wearing like, a Debbie Harry t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> So it's I off if like someone sister. lifts their shirt up uh, on the show. So. <laughs> we love that. We love when that happens. Oh yeah. my god! I mean, that I was see amazing. Suzanne Vega interview. <laughs> <laughs> it's fantastic. So, um, so that that aspect of it was just like great. It was great. Um, but yeah, there was a lot of pressure, um, and uh, it wasn't really great for the for the band that I was touring with, somehow we were, all the pressure was kind of getting to us. We were fighting a lot on the, on the bus. Um, people were kind of acting out in certain ways. Mm. Um, I'd rather not talk about how, you know, it's just that it, it brings out the best and the worst in people. Um, but there was no question that, that it was this moment that happened. And uh, I, I, I loved it. Um, but I was also kind of happy when the year was over and I needed to take some time and then recover. So do you feel like you people uh, from your generation, I think people like you and Amy Mann, songwriters came up in the mid to late eighties. Do you think you directly led people like you directly led to the quote unquote Lilith Fair generation, Sarah McLaughlin, Sean Colvin, those types of singer songwriters, or do you think it was just kind of, a coincidence that there was this strong female singer-songwriter generation right after you? Mm. Oh, I don't think it was a coincidence. Um, first of all, I think that uh, the natural state of things, I think, is to be about 50-50. I mean, they're brilliant female singer-songwriters, but they were not getting their opportunities in the 60s and 70s and in the 80s. You know, there was, uh, I think at one time, I remember looking at the... Uh, Rolling Stone top 100 albums and you had 92 guys and maybe eight females. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking that is wildly um, disproportionate. People picture uh, think people like Carol King and Janice Ian, but th they were few and far in between compared to the male counterparts. Well, compared to what came later, yeah. Um, so in a sense, it was uh, artificially being held down so I think what happened was that when I got my record deal and there were other people around the same time, I know that Tracy Chapman at the time had said that she really felt that I helped her to get mm -hmm. a record deal mm -hmm. uh, in, in terms of showing um, showing the businessmen that there could be a uh, an audience for a female with a guitar. I mean, Sean Colvin, uh, I directly helped her because I hired her for the tour for the Solitude Standing Tour as a backup singer. And my management loved her voice so much that they took her on as a client. And so uh, Sean Colvin's early career was due to, you know, uh, AGF management. Um, so that that worked. But I mean, she's also incredibly talented. I mean, these yeah, are really true, talented true. women who really deserve that record deal. Um, so yeah, by the time the 90s came along, we had Sinead O'Connor, you had the Indigo Girls, you had, um, yeah, Sarah McLaughlin and 
and it was the Lilith there I felt was uh, I, I was so um, honored to play with Lilith Fair. Uh, I think I did most of the years uh, that it that it ran. Um, I thought it was a really gratifying great idea. for you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was great. Speaking of your guitar, like there are songs like A Small Blue Thing that have such gorgeous guitar playing. It seems like you're, you're a singer-songwriter that really knows her instrument. What is your relationship with your guitar like and how did that build and where did it start? Um, I always loved the sound of the guitar. My stepfather, Ed Vega, had a guitar in the kitchen, uh, a beautiful nylon string, very warm sounding. Um, and so he would play uh, after dinner sometimes. So I started to play that when I was about 11. I picked up the guitar and very painstakingly taught myself how to play by reading uh, these pop songbooks that we had in the house that had little pictures of where you could put your finger fingers. Uh, I don't really know music theory. I tried taking lessons a few times and I was always pretty bad at it. So I would just quit after uh, one or two times. You know, like you, I, I wanted to play certain songs like Beatles songs. And instead I was learning like these weird folk songs like, uh, I don't know, Wild My Mountain Time and stuff like that. I, I, I which I thought was really boring. Yeah, it was not cool and it was not what I wanted to be doing. So. So I just kind of made my own style of playing um, by looking at jazz songbooks, pop songbooks, anything that would teach me a new chord. I would just sit in my room and figure out where to put my put my my fingers to fret, and then I would um, make up little uh, patterns in terms of picking. Uh, so I kind of invented my own way of doing doing things that worked for me. Was there anybody you listened to growing up that you were like, I want to sound like this person or I want to have the career like this person? Uh, the one that comes to mind, well, there's three, uh, but the, the one that hits me immediately is Leonard Cohen because he had mm -hmm. these gorgeous, rich, interesting, beautiful, poetic songs. Um, and he also played nylon string and, uh, I just loved the whole world that he created with his songs. Um, I also wanted to be like Bob Dylan. I mean, like who didn't every, every songwriter wanted to be like Bob Dylan because he had all this, this wild imagination and all this freedom. Um, and from time to time you could actually hear him on the radio, whereas you never heard Leonard Cohen on the radio. And then the third one really was Lou Reed, who I discovered when I was 19. And he was sort of the first person I ever actually saw on stage uh, in terms of the music industry, in terms of like seeing a gig. I had done more shows than I'd ever actually seen by the time I was 19. And he you really have, influenced me a lot. You always have to then like the coolest and most like not, not not obvious titles for your album, such as the, you know, Days of Open Hand, you know, how did you come up with a title like that? Like, what did it mean to you? And, you know, the album art for, for this album? Um, Days of Open Hand, you know, I was so intent on trying to see the future. Uh, it's something uh, that I've never uh, been able to forecast things even if I'm watching a movie sometimes I just can't figure out what's going to happen next it doesn't come to me uh, so I think I was kind of obsessed with the idea of telling the future so the open hand is like the palm like what's in your palm what is there 
what what is the future going to be um and the artwork for that album was very heavily influenced by this wonderful artist down in texas his name is jeff kern um who created a lot of the collages for the for that album and we chose him because the i felt that his work had a kind of surreal bent and and uh to it and sort of reflected the mood and the ideas of the songs um, so in a sense, we kind of co-opted his, his aesthetic for that album. And he also helped with the, there's a video for the single, which was called In My Book of Dreams. Um, he's still working today. Um, he's still, he's a really terrific artist and I would recommend anybody going to, uh, to check out his, his work. You know, Suzanne, I'm, I'm a big fan of, uh, your album, Nine Objects of Desire, you made in the mid nineties, especially the sound of it. It's so organic and earthy and sexy and slinky and really slinky. stands out as a unique uh, part of your discography. So can you talk a little bit about, tell me about creating the sound for that album, especially, you know, Caramel, which has become a fan favorite and, you know, was used in the, the trailer for the movie Closer and, it's um, just become kind of this part of your, uh, you know, one of your uh, most known songs. So talk about that whole album. The Sound of Nine Objects of Desire was created by the combination of Mitchell Froome as producer and Chad Blake as the engineer. Uh, and they were a brilliant, really dynamic duo. Um, Mitchell could do anything with production. He was like, a, he would work with the music itself. Um, and then Chad would work with the sounds that uh, were being recorded. So Mitchell would find the right musicians to play or combination of musicians. Um, so what was exciting for Mitchell on the Nine Objects album was that we had two drummers. We had Jerry Murata and Pete Thomas. Uh, Pete Thomas is the guy from the attractions of Elvis Costello and the attractions. Jerry Murata used to play with Peter Gabriel so the two of them together were a great combination. So there's all this lively sort of rhythmic stuff going on in a lot of uh, those songs. And um, Chad's particular gift is a kind of spatial quality as to where he puts the sounds in, in the mix. So when you're listening to it, some things will sound very close to your ears and other things will sound far off and distant. Uh, some things will be slightly distorted and other things will be super pristine. Uh, so he, he, they both were real artists in, in how they approached their, um, how they approached their, uh, their, their, their jobs, you know. Uh, it was, we all had this great chemistry going on. Something that people, not a lot of people might, might know about you as much as they know you for your music is that you've actually written a play and you've played in in theater um the mccullers <laughs> talks about love how did that happen how'd that come about and like the writing process yeah i've spent actually the last 10 years have been devoted to that play um I, when i was at, at barnard college i majored in english literature but i minored in theater i had taken so many theater classes that i had enough credits to to actually minor in theater so uh, my senior thesis at Barnard was the first draft of this play. 
And the play back then was called Nothing Human. And it was based on the life and work of Carson McCullers, the writer from the 1940s and 50s from the deep south. Um, and it was something I had always intended to go back to and finish up. Um, so then the second draft came out in, a, it must've been 2011. That's the one that people know as Carson McCullers talks about love, which is sort of the second draft. And then the final version of the play came out in 2018 and it had its world premiere at the Alley Theater in Houston, Texas. Um, so I have spent pretty much the last 10 years of my life writing and rewriting that play. Um, so that's the final version of it. And there's going, there's a film now that's finished and we're going to see if it will be accepted at the Tribeca Film Festival. Nice. Uh, we're ho we're hoping it first. will be. Yeah, <laughs> I'm hoping it will be accepted, please. Uh, so it sounds like the happens. voyage that um, that that Hades Town went on that started out as a singer songwriter project and it bloomed over the course of 10, 12 years into a Broadway musical. Do you? Yeah, I watched her journey from afar, and I wish mine had the same ending as hers, but it, it didn't quite. I mean, go it's that not way. a. Do you do you, uh, do, you, do, you, do you do you have hopes for it beyond regional theater? And I mean, I know it's satisfying just to see it performed professionally, but I mean, do you have any? You know, what are your hopes for it on the stage? Uh, I think unless the film sparks some wild interest, I think right now I'm just going to kind of put all that down for the time being you know my biggest ambition right now is just i hope that the film gets into the tribeca film festival and we'll see what happens um but i'm not going to push it uh, push the theater part of it anymore at this point because i really feel like i need to get back to songwriting yeah. um it's been a while since my last album i really need to we need to write some new songs i need to write some songs about this era that we're living in and these you know these these times that we live in uh, I'm feeling that kind of uh, hunger to start writing songs again and, um, you know, but I never say no. If there's someone wanted to produce the play, I'd be up for discussing it. Well, it's, it's sort of out of your hands. You just let the movie do what it does and, you know, and see, yeah. see what happens. Um, yeah, exactly. You mentioned, you mentioned, you know, you're back, you want to get back into the songwriting mode. Your latest album was a, a live album you recorded um, in New York. Uh, which was kind of a, a mixture of different songs from throughout your life. So tell us about that, performing at the Carlisle, how, how that worked out. Um, yeah, the Carlisle Cafe is a wonderful little place. It's super, super expensive. So I never even knew about it until much later on in my life and career. Um, so I've played there twice now. And the first time I played there, I learned a lot. Um, you play at the Cafe Carlisle, not just for a night, but for like two whole weeks. And they like you to have a real show. So uh, I decided that I would make a show out of all of the songs that had to do with New York, with New York City. Um, the, the Cafe Carlisle is a hotel, as well as having this little club in it. So I knew they had a lot of visitors from out of town. And I thought that would be entertaining for, for their clientele. Um, and people flew in like from Italy and they flew in from Canada. They flew in from like California uh, for the show and they stayed at the hotel. So it worked so well that I figured oh, the second week I thought let's, um, let's record a few nights, make, to, make this little album. Uh, never dreaming that we were gonna have this pandemic um, and that we wouldn't have live music for a while. 
so there's a kind of nostalgic feeling there now when I even think about it. The fact that you built a whole show around just being an artist growing up in New York, I feel like people who aren't, who didn't grow up in New York City, they don't understand as, as especially as an artist, how much impact the environment has on you as a person, as an artist, upbringing, everything, um, yeah. you know, inspiration wise, you're a real New Yorker. Like this is yes, like, you know what I mean? <laughs> That's true. Like this is New York tough right here. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, <bet> um, right. <laughs> I just wanted to point that out. And I, yeah. I just love that about you. And yeah. You never had, the, you, <laughs> you never had the temptation to move to LA and get go all Hollywood. Yeah. To have you? Well, I was born in California. Uh, I was born in Santa Monica and came to New York City, came to East Harlem, actually, at the age of two and a half. Um, I have gone back from time to time. I was actually married to Mitchell Froome, uh, the producer I was talking about before. We were married for several years and have a beautiful daughter. Um, and he lived in California all through our marriage. So we would take turns visiting each other's houses. He would come to New York and I would come to go to L.A., uh, but I have to say, I, I always found it difficult. I mean, I like to walk. I like to walk fast. I like to take the subway. Mm -hmm. um, there's none of that going on. I didn't learn to drive until I was much older. <laughs> you know, so uh, I took a cab once. I thought, oh, I'll hail a cab and go see my lawyer. It, the cab fare was like $120 mm -hmm. in LA, it right? Was, <laughs> yeah, I was like, it was, like, it was crazy. Um, so I couldn't really... I didn't really feel comfortable. I didn't really find my way around there, but uh, I go there from time to time. I like to visit. Yeah, it is a good it is a good place to visit, especially in January and February. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. Um, I still have family there. Yeah. Now we'll let you go here in a minute, but I want to get your opinion on the way the music industry works now um, in terms of how artists get paid. You came up in an era where the record companies really had a lot of power and having record sales and having hit songs on the radio uh, really counted for something. Obviously that's still important and still a really big deal, but now people find it harder to make money with album sales and to make money yeah. just with, you know, royalties from radio play. But at the same time, you know, you have this environment where people can promote their music on social media. They can reach new artists with, with new audiences with Bandcamp and SoundCloud. So I want to kind of phrase this question in a different way, not just how you feel about it, but how do you think you would have done in this climate? Say if you were 22 years old right now, how you would have done. Uh, if I were 22 now, I would probably have a different strategy. Yeah. Um, yeah, one artist I was always impressed with was um, Ani DeFranco, who I knew. I knew her when she was very young, when she was 11 or 12. I used to stay at her parents' house in Buffalo when I went up there to play one of the local clubs. Um, so I watched her career with interest. And one brilliant thing that she did was she started her own record label. And so therefore, she controlled the whole thing from the beginning. Um, instead she sold of getting a lot of albums through that record label. Yeah, and it was her own record label. So uh, say someone like me, I got 12.5% of the profits, which is, and the rest went to the record company. And at that time, that was a pretty good deal, um, especially since I did sell millions of albums. But imagine how much more I would have made if I had, if it was my own record label. Um, so that's, 
something I thought about and eventually I did start my own record label and that has helped me because now when uh, say I have this series called the close-up series where I re-recorded a lot of my older songs in a more acoustic way and sometimes those get streamed and played on Spotify uh, like certain people license them and I get a lot more money for those streams than I do for say the original uh, hit version. Um, so that would be one thing to explore if, uh, if you, you know, you'd have to get a manager who knew how to do that, who knew how, if, especially if you're the songwriter, um, if songwriting is really your thing, which mm -hmm. it was for me, that was really my, my thing. So yeah, you'd have to figure out, you just have to figure it out. I mean, there are really no formulas um in any era you you always have to figure it out you it was, a little, more, it was out a little more it was a little more do. linear i guess it was more like step by step you get your demo out there you play shows you get the attention of a and r you get a record you get a record contract you know it was more step by step now there's just more avenues to to take it feels like now yeah, and I'm not familiar with all of them. You know, I have my thing that I'm sort of doing right now because I do have a record label and I do have a history and I have publishing and all that stuff. But uh, yeah, if I were starting out now, you need to be smart. You need to get people who have your interest at heart. And uh, the thing that always impressed me about Ron Fierstein was that he chose, he looked at all of the, the major labels and decided A&M was the one for me. That was impressive to me because it's not like he knew someone at AM or in his, he didn't go looking through his phone book to see who he knew. Mm -hmm. He looked at the big world and figured out where I belonged and then put me there, um, which is, that's a visionary. That's someone with a vision. That's not someone with a little address book saying, mm -hmm. oh, my friend, blah, 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 can get you in here or there. That's someone with a small vision. Mm -hmm. uh, but my, uh, but I was always impressed that Ron had a, had a much bigger vision. So those, that's the kind of person you need to find uh, who can help you, someone who will have your talents and your, your strengths at heart and, and know what to do with them. I can tell Demi's hype right now because I she's... love, I love when she talks about her career. I'm just like, preach. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Suzanne. We appreciate you sticking around with us, spending time with yeah, us. And we look forward to that new album whenever it comes out with the original song. All right. We love All you. Right. Also, shout out to Jordan, who uh, interviewed Suzanne Vega about 10 years ago. And here we are. Yeah, full circle. That's right. That's, That's right. right. Full circle. That's right. For a newspaper that sadly no longer exists because newspapers, you know. Yeah. <laughs> That's the times we live in. They change right. all the time. Times yeah. they are changing. All right. All right, thanks, thanks guys. We'll talk to you later. Mwah. All right, bye, bye bye, Suzanne. Thank you. Bye. Thank you to our guest, Suzanne Vega, New York City legend. This is It's Real with Jordan and Demi. It's presented by PopDust. Go to popdust.com for an archive of all of our past shows. And you can find me on Instagram at Demi underscore Ramos. And you can find Jordan at Jordan Edwards Studio. See you next time. <laughs>